Well, amen on that, right? The Lord has blessed this church with many talented individuals to lead us in praise every week. So thank you guys. Thanks for all your work on that. That was incredible, and we're grateful for that. Before we get to the message this morning, Taylor Fox is back. Come on up here, Taylor. Um, He's back for his graduation this week. Sorry. And so he just graduated from Troy. Most of you know him since he's a son of Gateway, but he's in France. I asked him if he'll just give us a minute or two quick update of what's going on and how we can be praying for him. Thank you, Grady. Um, I'm always amazed when I get to visit this church because God has gifted so many people in this church and all of us with a gift. And I see in this church and this body, you guys are using that gift and you're using it together. And that's a beautiful thing that um, I love getting to see when I visit. Um, so for, there's a lot of people I don't recognize and a lot of people that I do. And so I've got to kind of combine between the two of introducing myself to people who don't know me, but also to update the people who do know me. And so for those who, uh, who I, I'm a, like you said, I'm a son of Gateway, which I've never heard that term before. I hope, <laughs> I hope Sorry, it's a good you, thing. You pastor brings strange terminology. Yeah. So. Um, but I grew up in this church. Um, I am in France right now, in Strasbourg, France. That's right next to the German border. I shop for my groceries in Germany. Um, my wife is uh, French. Her name's Sarah, and she's not able to be here today as she's eight months pregnant. And uh, so soon I'll, I'll be up here with a wiggling worm as well. Um, and so we work with the navigators, and a lot of people, their eyes kind of go up and, oh, you're in France, the number one country in the entire world for tourism, the place where everybody says, I have to go there before I die. Um, and they think, you know, you're, you're not digging wells, you're not educating children, you're not doing all of these things associated, we associate with what makes ministry seem more legitimate when you're, you're abroad. And I think the interesting thing that I, over there, it is one of the hardest places to do ministry because everyone says, been there, heard that, and it's not the right answer. And you get that from science, you get that from philosophy, you get that from um, bad history. And so you you have this combination where this country doesn't think that Christianity is the answer. We've already had a thousand years to prove that. And so I think when we live in comfort, we come to a moment where we don't actually feel the hunger, the spiritual hunger. And we, we assume that we've already tasted and seen that the Lord isn't good enough. And I think at the same time, we can also be filled with so much noise that we never actually stop to listen. And so being in, a ministry, being in ministry in a place where people think, you're a missionary, well, why, why are you here? You know, you should be digging wells, feeding children, and doing things that are useful in this world. Why are you spending time with us? And that's kind of what the French mindset would be if I told them I'm a missionary. I don't tell them that because they would immediately treat a missionary the same way you would treat a missionary. If someone kept, I came from France to be here to share the gospel with you. Okay, well, well, I'm not going to spend a lot of time with you because you have an agenda. Um, and so what do we do? We do, we do each week we do, we host, a, we host an evening, we have food. We're in France. We have to eat, just like the Baptist people. And, and so we do, we do a meal, then we do kind of a Bible study, and then afterwards we have a time to discuss, to, get, to uh, kind of look at what we do and build that relationship because the relationship is the bridge for the gospel. And I want to kind of share that just since we've been here last summer, we started a new group. We have a lot of new people who are in our group. And our group is a student group, which in the past we haven't had a lot of students attending. And so this, right now we're at a point where we have about 10 people coming regularly to our group. 
and about half of those, about four out of the ten, are unbelievers. And when I say unbelievers, one person's Muslim, one person's agnostic, one person is from Asia, and the other person is kind of, I would suggest not in a place where Jesus is the Lord, but maybe important in other ways. And so there's quite a big, big range of people in our group. And so I would put forward that I would, I would love, I'm here to ask for your prayers. I'm here to ask because you guys have prayed for us in the past and God has blessed what we've been doing. And I, I consider that that's not us so much as that's us as a, as a whole. And I would invite you guys to be praying for us. I thank you for the time you've given us. When we come by, we're, we're honored to be able to speak before you guys. If you would like to follow our newsletter or to hear much more from us in person, feel free to ask me at that, at that at the end of the service. But I'm very thankful to be a part of your body. I'm thankful to be sent by you and to continue to get to know the new faces and continue to uh, surprise the older ones. Thank you very much. Thanks, Taylor. Well, I had the joy of getting breakfast with Taylor this week and getting to hear his story and learn more about what he did. And it was a delightful morning, and I'm just excited. I hope, for those of you who don't know what, more of what they're doing with Navigators, I hope you'll take time and catch him after the service and get on his newsletter and find out more about what he's doing. I do want to just make sure you're aware of the fact that a lot of the missionaries that you support as Gateway and that we support as a church are support-based. They're not salary. He doesn't get a salary from the Navigators. He gets a salary from supporters. And so I just encourage you to... As you pray for him, consider financially supporting them in their ministry. They can't be in France doing what they do without faithful financial partners back here at home, kind of holding the ropes in prayer and in finances. So if you're interested in finding ways to partner with him financially and in prayers, I'd encourage you to talk to him after this service. Well, friends, we're in the fourth and final Sunday of Advent. We've been on an Advent theme for the last several weeks. You saw earlier the lighting of the fourth Advent candle, the candle of love. And I want to continue thinking about these Advent themes today. Over the last three weeks, we've discussed the different Advent themes. You see them on the banners over there. We talked about hope, peace, and joy, and now we're to the candle of love. And over these weeks of discussing hope, peace, and joy, we've had several emphases each week as we think about this. I just want to remind you, when we think about Advent, Advent has several components of it, several things that we remember and think about. First, it is a time of us remembering the longings of the Jewish people for the Messiah coming. We reflect back on the thousand years they were waiting for the Messiah to come. And so we, we think about Advent longings. But in Advent, we celebrate Christmas, the birth of Christ, the coming of the promise, and the coming of the Messiah. And, we, and now as one's on this side of history, we look back and see how God fulfilled those promises and the prophecies in the Old Testament and how hope, peace, and joy, and love have come because of, because of what Christ has done and how we can experience hope, peace, joy, and love because of Christ. But Advent also is for us a longing as well. You know, as we reflect back on the longings of the Jewish people for the Messiah, Advent is a longing for us for Christ's return, His second coming. Because yes, we have hope. Yes, we have peace. Yes, we have joy. Yes, we have love. But friends, we only have it in part. The day is coming when we have it in full, when we see Jesus face to face, and we will have a hope, a peace, a joy, and a love that, that will just blow away any experience we've had on this earth. So Advent for us is our own longings for Christ's return when we have all these things in full. Well, today we come to the topic of love, the Advent theme of love. Well, this is fresh on my mind because I was out of town the last several days. I was officiating a wedding in Huntsville, Alabama, which, by the way, let me say, it was an interesting wedding because it was an outside wedding. And if you think about Friday afternoon's weather, it was the coldest wedding I'd ever officiated. But in the midst of the cold wedding, there were warm thoughts about love on this cold, cold day. 
And when we think about when we think about love in the wedding, there was a phrase that struck me as I was officiating and talking through it. We talked about in marriage, love is to be a permanent thing. There's a permanent to love, and I begin to reflect on that and begin to wonder how often do we normally think of love with a sense of permanence to it, a sense of steadfastness to it? Do we normally experience it that way? At least in our culture, when we talk about love, we often think of it in terms of a subjective feeling. It comes, it goes. I fall in love, I fall out of love. You, you kind of hear this terminology in our culture. And so love becomes this kind of almost roller coaster of highs and lows. It comes, it goes, because we've kind of you know, almost relegated it to a subjective feeling. But love is not really a feeling. It is demonstrated by actions. And that can become very convicting in our own lives. We can say we love our spouse, but yet then in the midst of an argument, we say some really unkind things, and our, and our words betray us. Because we say we love, but we don't act like it. How about with our kids? We say we love our kids, and we're sold out for our kids. But then when they are getting impatient, they're not coming down the stairs fast enough, or getting in the car fast enough, or asking a question for the tenth time, we get angry and we begin to provoke our children into anger themselves. And our actions and our words betray us of what we claim we feel. And even more so, how about with God? It's easy for us to affirm in song and in our prayers, oh God, we love you. But yet often our actions and our words betray that because Jesus said, if you love me, you obey my commands. Our own experience of love is often one that's up and down, up and down, and there's not really a sense of permanence to it. But not just in our own hearts, in our experience with others. How many of us have people, friends, family members, others who say they love us, turn on us? And their words and their actions betray the fact they really don't, they don't love, and we feel hurt and we feel rejection. And it's easy for us to become disillusioned by that and even become disillusioned with the concept of love. But friends, the scripture tells us that there is a love that is constant. A love that, unlike our emotions, never wavers, doesn't have highs, it doesn't have lows, it doesn't have ups, it doesn't have downs. There is a steadfast, unchanging, constant, eternal love. A love that existed before the foundation of the world, and a love that will exist 10 trillion years from now and longer than that. And that's simply God's eternal love for his people. God's eternal love for his people. Unlike our experience of the feelings of love, God's love does not change. God's love is not a roller coaster, not up and down. God's love is steadfast. It is eternal. And my goal this morning is simple as we approach Christmas. It's almost to be amazed at God's eternal love. Because we can talk about it, but I think we can lose the wonder of the fact that God's love never changes. God's love that's been consistent before he made the world, his love for his people, before he even created and spoke the world into being, God's love for us was there. God's love was there throughout all the Old Testament. You will see some of that this morning. His steadfast love for his people. But that love that was manifest in Emmanuel coming as God with us. That love that we can experience in Christ today. And that love that we will experience even more fully when we see Jesus face to face. I want us to be amazed at God's eternal love. I'm going to look, we're going to look at three texts briefly this morning to try to get a glimpse of this. So first, would you turn to Psalm 136? Psalm 136. I want us to go back to the Psalms. This particular Psalm, we do not know who the author of it was. We speculate perhaps it was King David, but nothing is attributed to it, so it's mere speculation on that. This particular Psalm we're look at, Psalm 136, was used in the public worship, the gathering, the assembly of God's people. That's what we call an antiphonal Psalm. It was a Psalm that was sung responsively. The priest would say the first line and either the congregation or a Levitical choir, we're not sure which, would respond with the refrain. And so then the priest would say a statement again, and the people would respond with a refrain. And line after line after line after line, this would happen. 
And the refrain was simply a reminder to call God's people to give thanks to him. Why? Because his love endures forever. His love endures forever. And line after line after line of this particular antiphonal psalm reminded that God's steadfast love, God's unchanging love, God's eternal love never wavers, never goes up and down. It has always been there and always will be. And that should make us amazed and thank God. And so as we work through the psalm, you're going to see at the beginning of the psalm, the psalmist is going to remind the Israelites of God's character. And he's going to turn it to reminding us of God's steadfast love and seen in creation. And he's going to turn it to remind us of God's steadfast love and how he delivered the people from slavery. He's going to remind us of God's steadfast love and giving the Israelites a land. And he's going to remind them of steadfast love and ongoing care. So you kind of see these themes develop. There's four or five verses on each. But as we read this, just notice what the psalmist does. He takes history... But he doesn't just stop history. He makes the history into theology. He takes what God has done and shows us the character of God in that. But he takes the theology and turns it to worship. He shows God's actions in history. Because remember, love is not a feeling. Love is demonstrating actions. So when we see God's consistent actions, he's going to turn that to theology so we know who God is. He's going to turn it then to worship, that we might worship the one true God. So I want us to read Psalm 136. I want to do it a little bit different this morning. I want to do it at least what we believe was done originally. And so I'm going to read the stanza... Now I want you to read the refrain to make us think this morning, right? And so what we're going to do is like, I'll read, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And then you will all respond for steadfast love endures forever. Now, we'll read it off the screen because there's lots of different translations. If you read New American Standard, it says his loving kindness is everlasting. If you read NIV, it says his love endures forever. ESV says his steadfast love endures forever. They're all conveying the same thing. there. But can I ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's wording and what a treasure we have that God has given us his very words of life to us, that we might know who he is and know his eternal, unchanging love for us. And I pray that as we read it and think about it, we might be amazed today. So again, I'm going to read the first line and you echo back, okay? You ready for this? Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him alone who does great wonders. To him who by understanding made the heavens. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. To him who made the great lights. The sun to rule over the day. The moon and the stars to rule over the night. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea in two and made Israel pass through the midst of it. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness. To him who struck down great kings. And killed mighty kings. Sihon, king of the Amorites. And Og, king of Bashan. And gave their land as a heritage. A heritage to Israel, his servant. 
It is he who remembered us in our lowest state and rescued us from our foes. He who gives food to all flesh. And finally, give thanks to the God of heaven. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I hope if nothing else, by the end of today, you're going to be going to bed tonight remembering his steadfast love (laughs) endures forever. Because that is the truth of this particular passage. What does it mean that God's love is steadfast? Well, there's lots of definitions of steadfast. It means it's fixed, it's unchanging, it's firm in purpose, it's resolute. I like the word best that it's unwavering. It's not changing. God's love is unwavering. It is unchanging and we can experience it. And friends, that's hard for us to fathom because our own experience of love is so wavering, but God's is unwavering, unchanging. And can I just pause and, and just remind us how thankful we should be for that? Do you realize how terrifying it would be if we woke up every morning not knowing what mood God was in? If God was as fickle as people were, with how powerful he is, to wake up in the morning and go, I wonder if God's in a good mood or a bad mood today. That would be terrifying. And praise God, God is unchanging and has loved his people is unchanging. That is cause for us to rejoice this Christmas season. But also... Realize how frightening it would be if God was all-powerful, but he was not good and loving. Thankfully, we serve a God who is all-powerful, but he's also loving. We serve a God who's all-powerful and unchanging. And so we don't have to wake up this morning going, I wonder if God's going to love me today. I wonder if God's going to be mad at me today. We don't have to wake up and fear that because God is unchanging. And the psalmist is going to remind us of God's character at the very beginning here. If you look back at the beginning of Psalm 136 here, I'm not going to read the stands the refrain you read over and over, but just notice it tells us to give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Then verse 2, give thanks to the God of gods. And verse 3, give thanks to the Lord of lords. He's reminding us of the character of God by reminding us of the titles of God here. These titles, God of God and Lord of lords, these come out of Deuteronomy 10. And the psalmist is reminding us that God is supreme. God is sovereign. He's more powerful than any king. He's more powerful than any lord. He is above all. He's the God of God and the Lord of all lords. But lest we think that that God who is above all is distant, he reminds us in verse 1, he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. God is good, he is loving, and we can experience that. And out of the overflow of his goodness, we see all the actions that come. Because remember, love is not a feeling, it is, a, it is actions that are demonstrated here. And look at the actions he demonstrates for his people in the Old Testament times. Starting in verse 4 through verse 9, we see God's love for his people in making the world. Look at some of the phrases. To him alone who does great wonders in verse 4. Verse 5, to him who by understanding made the heavens. Verse 6, to him who spread out the earth above the waters. Verse 7, to him who made the great lights. Verse 8, the sun to rule over the day. And 9, the moon and the stars to rule over the night. This is the picture back to Genesis 1 and 2 of God creating the world. God is all-powerful. He spoke and the world came into being. But lest we miss it, God's creation here was not something in the abstract. It was tied to his love for his people. Why did God put the sun in the sky? Because his love does what? Why did God put the moon in the sky? His love endures forever. Why did God make the oceans? God's creation was an act of his love. God made us a good world to live in. A perfect world, a world for us to enjoy. I mean, whose idea was it that we might have taste buds that we can enjoy pecan pie and chocolate this Christmas season? God didn't have to give us taste buds. 
That's his goodness to us. God made the world and he made it good. Every day creation, it is good. It is good. And people, it's very good because it's God's love for us. Why did God put trillions of stars in the sky? God didn't need it there. But out of his love. His steadfast love and dear prayer. He gave us the wonders of the universe that we might marvel at his power. That we might love him. Out of his love for us, he made the world. That's what verses really 6 through 9 or 4 through 9 are all about here. But God reminds Israel that it wasn't just in creation. God demonstrated his steadfast love for them, starting in verse 10, by delivering them from slavery in Egypt. This is the Exodus. This is the Passover that we celebrate. Look back in verse 10. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. That's the night of the Passover. Verse 11. And brought Israel out from among them. This is the Exodus with a strong hand. Verse 12. And an outstretched arm. Verse 13. To him who divided the Red Sea in two. Verse 14. And made Israel pass through the midst of it. Verse 15. But overthrew Pharaoh and the host in the Red Sea. And verse 16. To him who led his people through the wilderness. With a pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. This is God demonstrating his love in delivering them from slavery. God brought them out, a phrase that was used over and over by the Jewish people to remind them of the Passover. The reminder that through the blood on the doorpost, the death angel passed over them. Which is ultimately what, if you remember, Jesus celebrated, but turned into what we celebrate as the Lord's Supper. Where the Israelites were celebrating God's love for them and delivering them from physical slavery. We now celebrate God's love for us and delivering us from slavery to sin and the bondage to sin. And friends, I hope you'll come back Christmas Eve here in town because we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together on Christmas Eve and remember that and reflect on some of these things that the Israelites were reflecting on right here. And so God's love was shown in this very tangible act of delivering them. But verses 17 through 22, God showed his love for them in giving them the land. You look through verses 17 through 22, it's all these names. Verse 17, he struck down great kings. Verse 18, he killed mighty kings. And you get verse 19, Sihon. And verse 20, Og. And... Why did he do all these things? Verse 21, that he gave their land as a heritage. Verse 22, a heritage to Israel, his servant. If you want to read back, Numbers 21 goes through some of the kings listed here. This was God's faithfulness and love for his people. He was giving them the land he had promised. He gave them what he had promised them because God is faithful to his word. And out of his love for them, he gave them a land. And in verses 23 through 26, we don't know exactly what event is in view here, but it's something recent in their history. Some speculate it's the exile. But regardless, verse 23 Notice it becomes much more current. It is he, God, who remembered us in our lowest state. Verse 24. And he, God, rescued us from our foes. And verse 25. And he who gives the food to all flesh. So something had happened recently is where God's people were seeing his steadfast, unchanging, eternal love in their recent history. And they were praising God for him. And friends, let's not forget, God didn't do this because Israel was great. God didn't do this because Israel was strong. God picked a weak people, a needy people a rebellious people, a sinful people, and did all these things for him, not because their love is so great, but because his love is great, his love is unchanging in that. And the people respond to God's steadfast love by that phrase, his steadfast love endures forever. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers who's ever lived, said this particular phrase, his steadfast love endures forever, is the sweetest stanza that a man can sing. The sweetest stanza that a man can sing. I hope when you were saying that over and over with me, his steadfast love endures forever, his steadfast love endures forever, that doesn't become repetitious or dull or old. That's one of the sweetest things for us as people to cling to, that God's steadfast, unchanging love will endure forever. And so we respond in worship because of his love. But friends, the story doesn't stop there. God's love didn't end with the Old Testament. We get to Christmas, to Advent. 
and we see God's steadfast, eternal love. And while we're amazed at the passive, we're amazed at creation, we're amazed at God's faithfulness to rebellious people, there's something even more amazing that happens. And that's Jesus coming. That God comes as a man to make a way for us. And our level of amazement at God's love grows. So now let's flip back towards the end of the season. We go to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. And I recognize there's more than I can unpack this morning in this text. We will, maybe in God's grace, get to do a whole sermon on this passage sometime in the future. I know I say that, I think, every message. But we will, we will surface glance at 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7 this morning. Again, there's much more that could be said for it than we can do this morning. But I want us to be amazed at God's eternal love and the Christmas story. And what we see mentioned here in John's writing. So look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now verse 9, this is a key verse for us. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That, how was it made manifest? That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Verse 10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So again, we don't have time to do justice to all this, but verses 7 and 8 are a command for how we as believers are to relate to each other, that we are to love one another. That's going to be a sermon for a whole other day. But he roots this appeal to how we're to treat one another in God's unchanging character. And he points us to the end of verse 8, these three simple words. What is it? God is what? Love. God is love. Well, this is one attribute of God. John is not saying that this excludes all other attributes. We'll have fun at this in, on Wednesday night starting in, in January of God's, or sorry, in March of God's attributes. God is not love sometimes and wrath sometimes and mercy sometimes and justice sometimes. God is always fully every attribute of his being. We'll talk more about how that works this spring on Wednesday night. But this, he's saying that one of God's attributes is he is love. And what does that mean? It means that God gives of himself to others. Remember, love is not a feeling. Love is demonstrating actions. That God gives of himself to bless other people. Do you realize how amazing that is? We deserve nothing but God's wrath. Yet God is the love. He chooses to bless us and give good things for the benefit of his people. And what is the greatest thing he gave us? Look back at verse 9 here. Out of all the things that we saw in the Old Testament of God doing, verse 9, in this, the love of God was made manifest. What does that mean to be made manifest? Manifest means it comes out to the open. It's made public. What did God do to make it public among us? That God, verse, middle verse 9, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. One of the greatest displays of God's love was that he came, that Jesus came, Jesus was sent it says that he was God's only son. If you read out of the King James, I don't know, if, I don't know all of you well enough to know if we have any King James people in here. If you read out of the King James, this is translated as his only begotten. So if you hear the phrase a lot, only begotten, that's coming from this particular verse right here. That Jesus is God's only son, his only begotten son. It reminds us that Christ is unique, that Christ is fully God. He's unique in that. And notice that God the Father sends God the Son, which is a great reminder for us. Jesus did not begin at Christmas. The baby in the manger is not the beginning of Jesus. There has always been the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A hundred trillion years ago, there was God the Son. 
And 152 years from now, there'll still be God the Son. Jesus did not begin at Christmas. This was the fullness of time when God the Father chose to send him into the world and chose to send him as a baby in the manger. It was a time that he had picked. It's interesting because this word sent, God sent his son, and the Greek is a perfect tense word. And what that means is what happened had ongoing permanent actions, permanent results. That when Jesus was sent in the world, it wasn't just for that day and age. Why Jesus was sent, again, sent is perfect tense. It means it was ongoing. He came so that what he might do might not just be for that day, but still today and forever in the future. It's ongoing permanent results for why he came. And why did he come in the verse 9? So that why we might live through him. Friends, that's just a picture of salvation. The Bible describes us being dead in our sins. A dead person can't decide, I'm tired of being in the casket, I'm coming back to life. A dead person can't come back to life. And so God breathes life into dead people. Christ came to bring salvation. And how does he do that? Verse 10. Because verse 10 turns from the Christmas story to the Easter story. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. Why? To be the propitiation for our sins. Friends, the Christmas story is a great news of love. That a baby came in a manger, that God came in human flesh. But that's not the greatest news. Jesus didn't come to be a nice person, show us how to be nice, moral people. Jesus came to live a perfect life and fulfill the law that you and I could not fulfill. Then when he died on the cross, he would die as a righteous sacrifice, a substitute for our sins. So all of our sins will be placed on him. Jesus came to die. He didn't come to be born there and be like, oh, look, there's a baby in a manger. That wasn't the ultimate focus. He was sent to die to bring life. To us today in this. And the word that's here, the big word, at least that the ESV translated, propitiation for our sins. That's the word everyone uses every day, right? We talk about propitiation every day, right? What does propitiation mean? It means an acceptable sacrifice. Jesus came to be an acceptable sacrifice. But here's the important part of propitiation. It was an acceptable sacrifice that bears the wrath. And so that people no longer experience wrath, but they experience favor. That God becomes propitious. He becomes favorable to people he was once angry at. That Christ came to turn God from being wrathful to us, but to turn God to being propitious, to being favorable, kind, loving, good to us. Not because we love God, because we, we didn't. We were haters of God. But God in His kindness to us, God the Father sends Christ the Son, fully God, fully man, to be the propitiation, turn God's wrath to His favor for us. And friends, we need to be amazed at that. And this Christmas season to realize it's not ultimately about the baby in the manger. That baby in the manger, according to these verses, came to die for our sins. Romans 5 tells us that God demonstrates his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so God's eternal, steadfast, unchanging love that should amaze us. We see it in creation and making a good world for us. We see it in how he treated the Israelites throughout all their history. We see it, yes, in Emmanuel and God with us. We see it in Christ dying and rising him for the forgiveness of our sins. And we might be reconciled to God and have his favor. My friends, there's still more. As if that's not enough to be amazed at. There's still more amazement at God's unchanging love. So look back one page. Last text today, 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. You may just have to look over a column or two. In 1 John chapter 3, let's see just two verses right here. It's going to begin very similar to what we just looked at of what Christ has done for us. Let's look at 1 John 3, 1 and 2. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. 
The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he, Jesus, appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Friends, the amazement of God's love continues, not just in the Easter story, not just in our salvation experience now, but for all eternity. God's eternal love is unchanging before creation, through creation, through Israel's history, through what Christ did, through his, his birth, his perfect life, his death, burial, and resurrection, through what he's doing now and what he will do forever on this. Look back in verse 1. It says that we are children of God. And be amazed, friends. That's not a title. That is a reality. If you are in Christ, you are a child of God. You belong to him. And God didn't do this begrudgingly like I talked about last week. Verse 1 says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. Some of your friends ever say that he has lavished upon us. God the Father is not like, well, I guess I'll redeem that person, though they're a mess. There's nothing begrudging in God. God is loving. God is joyous. God is hopeful. And we saw last week, God rejoices over us with singing. That God gladly, joyfully, out of his love, draws us to himself and makes us his children. And this is so amazing, our English translations do not do justice for us. The very first word of chapter 3, verse 1, if you're first John, at least in what I'm reading, says, begins with the word see. Some of your translations say look. Some may say behold. But the Greek, and there's a big major translation that actually totally omits that word, but that's a whole other story for another day on Bible translation. See, behold, look. Friends, this is in the Greek is an imperative. It's a command. It's not like a suggestion, hey, take notice of this. This is an imperative command, the force of command. Everyone, you must see, you must look, you must behold, pay attention. And what are we to see? What are we to behold? What are we commanded to look at? The love of the Father. But notice how that Father is described. Again, our English does, doesn't do justice. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. The translate what kind, some of your translations may say how great or what manner. Every time that word is used in the New Testament, we get what kind. It's used seven times in the New Testament. Every time that word, what kind, is used, it's used in the context of absolute astonishment. Absolute amazement. It's something so glorious, so grand, that we are just dumbfounded and almost speechless at this. Like the, the word, what kind, literally means otherworldly. And that would be kind of a weird translation. See what otherworldly type of love. But that's kind of what it is. Like, it literally means from another planet. God's love is so different than our experience. It is so foreign to anything that we ourselves could do. We are to be astonished at it. What kind, what amazing type of love this is. A love that takes enemies and makes them his children. A love that takes objects of wrath and makes them objects of mercy. A love that takes people who are far away and brings them close. But friends, it doesn't end there. That's love, eternal love doesn't end in our salvation. Look at verse 2 and what it says in verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be, future, has not yet appeared. There's something else coming. But we know that when he, Jesus, appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Yes, friends, we are children of God now, but more is to come. There's a day coming when we see Jesus with unveiled faces. We get glorified bodies. No more pain, no more sickness, no more colds, no more achy joints, no more cancer, no more sickness, no more death. That that day that comes out of God's love, is still coming. 
Right now, yes, we are adopted. Right now, yes, we are reconciled to God. Right now, yes, we can know God. But friends, the day is coming that we fully realize that and we see God face to face. Yes, now we're free from the power of sin. But guys, the day is coming when we're free from the presence of sin. There's this now, not yet celebration. Advent here. Christ, out of God's love for us, has done all these things. But he is going to do more because his steadfast love, his unchanging love is eternal. I love how the ESV Study Bible describes it, and I'll just commend the ESV Study Bible. If you're looking for a gift for your spouse or a friend for Christmas, I recommend the ESV Study Bible. There's no Study Bible, I think, as well written as that, so there's my plug on that one. But in the ESV Study Bible, it describes what this day will be like. It says, in eternity, Christians will be morally without sin, intellectually without falsehood or error, physically without weakness or imperfections, and filled continually with the Holy Spirit. This is what it's talking about in verse 2. We are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared. What we will be when we are morally without sin, intellectually without falsehood, intellectually without error, physically without weakness or imperfections, and constantly without ever a moment elapsed, filled with the fullness presence of the Holy Spirit. Guys, that's the longings of Advent. We are, yes, celebrating what Christ did, but we're longing for that even more. So friends, be amazed this Christmas at God's eternal steadfast love, a love that made a good world for us to point us to his glory, a love that was seen in his faithfulness throughout all of the Old Testament to take care of his people, a love that was seen in the Christmas story of the baby in the manger, Emmanuel, God with us, but a love that was seen in Christ dying and rising him for the forgiveness of our sins, and a love that we will experience not only every day now, but experience in fullness when we are glorified. So as we end, I want to ask you this simple question. Are you experiencing God's amazing eternal love? Is your life marked by a daily experience of hope, peace, joy, and love? Because if we are children of God, God offers that to us. The question we have to make sure foundationally is, has Christ become the propitiation for our sins? Have you experienced forgiveness of your sins so you no longer will face the wrath of God, but you'll experience his unfailing, eternal love for you. And like I said last week, if you haven't, what better season to do that than Advent when we're celebrating that Christ has come, Emmanuel, that we might be reconciled to God, that he might be the propitiation for our sins. I'm beginning to get to know a lot of you, and I know for many of you, and most of you perhaps, you experience that. You can say with confidence, yes, I know that Christ is the propitiation for my sins, that Christ has redeemed me, that I am forgiven, that I'm experiencing God's love. And so can I challenge you this Christmas season, in the midst of the busyness, would you pause and be amazed? Like we're commanded in 1 John 3, see, behold, look, God does not change or waver. God loves us, not because of us, but because of him. Even before he spoke the world into being, he chose us, Ephesians 1, before the foundation of the world. Friends. Let's be amazed that God in his mercy did not leave us in our sin, but drew us to himself. And let's behold that, like it said in 1 John 3, see, be amazed, look at what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. My prayer this Christmas season, in the next week or so as we celebrate Christmas, that that amazement at God's love for us, every time we see a nativity set, every time we see a manger, remember that it wasn't about the baby in the manger, but it was about him coming to die, to be the propitiation for our sins. May it lead us to praise and worship, like Psalm 136 said, because God is good, right? Let's say it again. Why do we praise God? Psalm 136, for His 
for a steadfast love endures forever. I pray that would be your experience this Christmas season. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, we are thankful that you are unchanging. Father, I am thankful this day that I do not have to wake up this morning wondering if you're in a good mood or a bad mood. If you got enough sleep last night, you're going to be short-tempered with me or loving today. Thank you that you never waver and you never change. Lord, I pray that would be an anchor and a truth for us this Christmas season. That if we are in Christ, if our sins have been forgiven because Christ came to give us new life, God, I pray that you would just let us be amazed at that each day. God, we would not go through the day just assuming it's a normal day, but may we marvel each day at who you are, your character, and your love for us. And Lord, for these brothers and sisters, I pray this Christmas season will be a Christmas season that is marked by experiencing, God, your love, your peace, your hope, and your joy. And so, Lord, over these next few days of the Christmas season, as we have Christmas gatherings and time with family, time with friends, and many things going on, Lord, would you give us grace to remember what this is really all about and to marvel and celebrate your unfailing love? Because, Lord, we rejoice this day and proclaim that your steadfast love really does endure forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing as we close this morning?